President Biden stands by embattled New York Governor Andrew Cuomo. Mayor de Blasio says he won't tolerate the city's allotment of vaccine doses being reduced by the governor for political reasons. A Brooklyn community fights to save its grocery store from being evicted by luxury real estate developers. Good evening. In New York, I'm John Tarleton, editor-in-chief of The Independent, New York City's progressive newspaper and website. In the news, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo continues to brush aside calls to resign from most of the state's congressional delegation and a majority of state legislators in Albany, including dozens of members of his own party. However, he still has one powerful Democrat in his corner, President Joe Biden. On Monday, Biden said he wouldn't pass judgment on Cuomo until an investigation was completed into charges that the governor sexually harassed six women, including four former aides. I think the investigation is underway and we should see what it brings us. Cuomo is also under FBI investigation for allegedly covering up the number of New York nursing home residents who died at the height of the pandemic last year. Meanwhile, Cuomo's roster of scandals continues to grow. The Washington Post and New York Times reported over the weekend that the governor's longtime fixer and vaccine czar, Larry Schwartz, called local officials across the state to check in on their willingness to publicly back Cuomo. On Monday, Biden Press Secretary Jen Psaki called the strong arming of local leaders, quote, inappropriate. Speaking Monday, New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio said he would not tolerate any efforts by the state to politicize distribution of the vaccines. There needs to be an investigation of why a senior official in the governor's office clearly tried to link vaccine supply to political support. And uh, I'll tell you something, he better not call me because I'll tell him what he can do with that. Um, No, it's unacceptable and we are not going to stand for it. And if we see any effort to reduce the vaccine supply to New York City as political retribution, we will bring it right out in the open. According to data on the New York Times website, New York State has delivered first doses to 22.2% of its population and has fully vaccinated 10.8% of the population. This is the second lowest number of any state in the northeastern United States after Delaware. We will talk more about Cuomo and the state of our state government after the break with Assemblymember Marcella Matanias, a Democratic Socialist who represents the 51st Assembly District in Brooklyn. Also at Monday's mayoral press conference, First Lady Shirlane McRae announced that the city had officially purchased a recently landmark building at 227 Duffield Street in downtown Brooklyn. Renamed 227 Abolitionist Place, the building was owned in the 1850s by abolitionists Thomas and Harriet Truesdell. Historians believe the building was a stop on the Underground Railroad used by enslaved persons fleeing north to freedom. This is Justin Cohen from the Friends of Abolitionist Place. We've had two major wins in the last month with 227 Duffield, now 227 Abolitionist Place. First, the city landmarked the building, clearing the way for it to be maintained in perpetuity. And second, the city purchased the building, which took it out of the hands of the developer who was threatening to demolish it. Now, we need to ensure that the city's feet are held to the fire so that we can turn that into a permanent, sustainable landmark to the history, the past, and the present of the radical abolition movements in this country. For more about the Friends of Abolitionist Place and the 20-year struggle to save the building, see our coverage in the new issue of The Independent that hit the streets of New York yesterday. In Crown Heights, residents are fighting to save an associated supermarket that recently received an April 7th eviction notice from a luxury real estate developer. Critics warn the loss of the grocery store could be especially harmful to older residents who cannot travel long distances to shop for groceries. Led by the Crown Heights Tenant Union, a number of groups rallied outside the grocery store on Saturday afternoon. 
This is Valerie Fleming, a member of the Crown Street Block Association and neighborhood resident since 1964, speaking at the rally. One thing about associate, they've never really changed. They've been there for the community. They've been clean. The store's clean. The people are friendly. I know there's some other stores in the neighborhood who now want to fresh up for the new people that move in. When we were holding them down back in the 70s, holding them down during the riots and the different things that happened in the community, now all of a sudden they want to fresh up. But the source has always been fresh. They've been always been on their game, and that's why we support them. We will have more about the struggle to save the supermarket later in the show. Outside City Hall today, activists from the Citywide People's Land Use Alliance rallied in opposition to Council Speaker Corey Johnson's proposed comprehensive zoning plan. The plan would strip community residents of their ability to participate in the shaping of land use decisions. This is one of the protesters. It is a top-down, hierarchical project that will prioritize growth as a blanket solution to the housing crisis. And we have all seen how this has worked so far. (laughs) This bill promises to fix unique community problems with a one-size-fits-all development solution without anything more than performative community consultation while giving a mayoral appointed director almost total control over the planning process. And finally, the New York State Assembly is set to pass the HALT Solitary Confinement Act, which is intended to restrict the inhumane use of solitary confinement and create alternative therapeutic and rehabilitative confinement options. The legislation would limit the use of solitary confinement to no more than 15 consecutive days or 20 total days within a two-month period. When we come back after this short break, we will get the latest from Albany with Assembly Member Marcella Matanias. She's a former tenant organizer who knocked off a 26-year incumbent last year, and she's one of six socialists currently serving in the state legislature. McCody Turner's Passion Dance with Elvin Jones on the drum kit. And you're listening to the Independent News Hour on WBAI Radio in New York. I'm John Tarleton, the Indies Editor-in-Chief. I'm joined today by my colleague, Julia Thomas. Uh, Julia, it's great to have you joining us today as a co-host. Thanks, John. It's great to be with you and all our listeners on 99.5 FM and streaming on WBAI.org. Right on. It, now turning to our first segment, the governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo, 
has been in the headlines in recent weeks for all the wrong reasons. Allegations of sexual harassment, a potential cover-up of nursing home deaths last spring, and further allegations this weekend that Cuomo's vaccine czar, Larry Schwartz, has been has been calling local officials across the state to gauge their support for Cuomo. <coughs> Sorry about that. Uh, Cuomo's scandal palooza comes as the state legislature is working to wrap up the annual state budget at the end of this month. A coalition of progressive groups from across the state is pushing a package of bills that would raise $50 billion in revenue from the rich to help pay for New York's recovery from the pandemic. Joining us now to fill us in on the latest from Albany is Assemblymember Marcella Matanias. She represents the 51st District, which encompasses Sunset Park, Red Hook, and parts of Bay Ridge in Brooklyn. And she is one of six Democratic Socialists currently serving in the legislature. Assemblymember Matanias, welcome to WBAI Radio. Thank you so much, John. Uh, Julia, thank you for having me here. Sure. Now, there's a lot of important work to be done this month on the roughly $200 billion annual state budget. But first, your thoughts on Governor Cuomo's multiple scandals, whether he should resign, and how the state legislature should respond if he won't resign. Yes. So um, the speaker has made an announcement that the assembly is going to look into possible impeachment. There's a judiciary committee that's going to be looking into facts of these allegations. And, you know, if they, uh, you know, if they if they in the majority agree with it, then it would go to the Senate where there would actually be a trial where there would be opportunities to present evidence and call witnesses. Um, and then that's something that would have to be decided by the state legislature. Right. And your, your reaction to these scandals, I mean, do you um, do you think uh, Cuomo should resign or face impeachment? So at this moment, I can't make any public comments. I happen to be a member of the Judiciary Committee that's going to be looking into this. I see. Uh, and we have a we have a clip we're going to run here in a moment of Governor Cuomo sort of apologizing for his behavior toward multiple women who have accused him of sexual harassment. And after we hear from the governor, I'd like to hear your reactions to him as well as to reports that sexism is endemic to Albany and how that affects women legislators, staffers, journalists in their ability to do their work and pursue their careers. Yeah, so I think that this is definitely, um, there's a problem. We know that there was uh, legislation that was passed not too long ago, uh, mechanisms put in place to deter this kind of behavior. So I think it's really important for the Attorney General's investigation, uh, particularly into the allegations of sexual harassment, to really understand what's happening and what additional measures need to be in place of that if that's what's needed. Um, the legislature is definitely changing. It used to be predominantly male. What we're seeing is I am part of an influx of a large uh, class coming in. There's definitely more women and people of color. And the state legislator, the state legislature is starting to look a lot more like uh, its residents in the state of New York. Right. And, um, uh, now the uh well just one, 
one one more question about the scandals. Uh, um, there there was a there was a poll that came polls that came out yesterday from um, um, Siena College showing uh, Cuomo's approval rating has plummeted to forty three percent, but only thirty five percent of New Yorkers want him to to leave office. Um, is there anything you you make from that? I think it's important to understand that this is a governor that's been around for 10 years. And there's uh, people that put a lot of trust into their elected officials. Um, and so it's, it's, it's a difficult but needed reckoning if, in fact, this is, uh, these allegations prove to be true. And I think the important thing is to get to the, to the truth. And make sure that folks understand what it, what the allegations are and what what the investigations are finding. There's a few that are going on right now. Right, and 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 the state budget is due at the end of the month. Um, what's your assessment of how the budget is shaping up so far, and what what do you think needs to be improved? So um, it's important to understand we there is a huge hole um, in the budget because of the pandemic. Um, a lot of things were not, um, there wasn't any revenue last year. We are getting an influx of assistance from the federal government and federal aid. Um, but we have to understand the way, uh, you know, the way the state was. And we had, you know, one of the highest numbers of homelessness. Um, before the pandemic and understanding what the pandemic has done, particularly to the working class community and how it's disproportionately impacted the black and brown community, uh, the working class. Um, they were not ready for uh, this pandemic. It's been years of uh, budget cuts to services that were needed, to housing, to education, to transportation, to our infrastructure, to our um social services. So it's an important not that not just that we ensure that we plug the budget hole, but that we're taking concrete steps and making sure um, that we have revenue that's going to provide for the services that we need and it's gonna provide revenue in the future as well. And, and you published an op-ed on the independent.org website yesterday about legislation you've proposed calling for a wealth tax in New York. I encourage everybody to go to independent.org and, and read that op-ed and all our other recent coverage. But why, why do you think it, uh, a wealth, wealth tax in particular is so important? For, um, for many years, the uh, state is not allowed to, to collect revenue in the form of a wealth tax and so has relied heavily on the city to impose taxes and it's most commonly known as the property taxes that we know of. And so this has been really detrimental to folks um, who are trying to accumulate wealth. Most of, the, um, most of the lower income earners that have any type of wealth is in their property. And so we understand that the really rich, the millionaires and the billionaires um, have their wealth in stocks and bonds. And so those are opportunities that we can use uh, to try and raise some revenue. But first, we need to change our constitution. So before we can talk about um, the exact uh, taxes that we want to impose, so first we have to change our constitutional amendment. So 
so that we can tax these types of intangible wealth. Right. And and how would you like to see all this extra revenue spent in the event that um, a wealth tax was, was implemented? So there's a lot of things um, we still currently need. And I think one of the biggest things for me is just housing. You know, under this governor, over the 10 years, we have seen the homeless numbers just skyrocket. We've seen um, more need for uh, homeless shelters. In my community specifically, there's been at least four or five hotels that were taken over by the city to to convert them into housing in order to house all these homeless people. So um, we need, uh, folks need assistance. So uh, rental assistance at the federal level. Uh, we need to build um, social housing. We need to build supportive housing. Uh, we need to get our folks off of the street. And so that's one of the things that we can definitely focus on. But there are many other things that we need to uh we need to make sure that our money is going to, right? So we're talking about our infrastructure. We're talking about our um, social safety net. You know, right now during the pandemic, one of the biggest issues is uh, food insecurity. Right. And um, what, what, are you, what are you hearing uh, on the ground from uh, people in Sunset Park and, and Red Hook and throughout your district about what their most urgent needs are? Definitely the rent. Um, folks have been unable to pay their rent for their homes uh, for over a year. We know that our small businesses are suffering too. We're, we've seen over the months how our communities have changed because the small businesses have disappeared and the ones that are there are holding on with bloody fingernails. You know, every month uh, that this, this pandemic continues, we see more of a need um, for food distribution. So, um, you know, just, just basic necessities uh, are at the forefront. We have a large um, undocumented population that was left out completely from uh, any federal aid, and they don't qualify. And we know that these folks are in our communities. They are frontline workers, and they're part of the cash economy. They're suffering, too. And... There's there's a, a package of bills known as the Invest in Our New York Act. I, I think it uh, has six measures in it to raise uh, taxes on the wealthy for a total of fifty billion dollars in, in revenue. Um, can you describe for us, you know, where that stands in the legislature right now? Uh, how much support there is for either for the whole package or part of the package, and um, and, and what uh, you know activists uh, outside the legislature and, and what concerned uh, residents of New York can do to, to push the legislature to enact it as much of this uh, legislation as possible? So um, there are six comprehensive bills that would um, allow us to raise revenue from the ultra-rich ultra millionaires and billionaires. Um, we know that there's 118 billionaires that made um, close to $77 billion just in the first quarter of the pandemic. Um, taxing some of their wealth would go a long way in not just providing much needed relief um, right now, but would really ensure that we are providing for our communities, that no one gets left behind, and that we are having an ongoing stream of revenue to be able to make our communities whole again. So right now... <clears throat> We are still uh, negotiating the the budget. 
Um, I'm hopeful that we will continue to fight for some more of these uh, revenues to be included. There is support amongst um, assembly members, um, but we need to keep having these conversations and we need to talk to folks so that they understand, you know, what some of this stuff means. And then okay. the most importantly, the, the good that it's going to do, the much needed good that we need. You bet. Well, we'll have to leave it there for now. Marcella Matenia is an assembly member from District 51 in Brooklyn and Democratic Socialist. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. When we come back, we'll talk with a community leader and city council candidate in Crown Heights, Brooklyn, about the struggle to save an associated supermarket in the heart of that community. It's facing an eviction date of April 7th. Money, Money, Money by ABBA. I'm Julia Thomas with The Independent, New York City's progressive newspaper and website. You can find us online at independent.org, I-N-D-Y-P-E-N-D-E-N-T.org. I'm joined by John Tarleton, the Indies editor-in-chief. You're listening to WBAI 99.5 FM. Before we continue with our second segment, I want to encourage everyone who can do so to give generously to WBAI and help keep shows like this on the air. You can give you can give by calling 516-620-3602 or going straight to give number 2 wbaiorg Again that number is 516-620-3602 or go to give number 2 wbaiorg You can make a one-time donation or better yet sign up as a WBAI buddy for as little as $10 per month or more and help Keep WBAI and shows like this on the air. There's no other community radio station in New York like WBAI, and it can only survive and thrive with the help of listeners like yourself. We'll be sharing this phone number again later in the show. Thanks, John. Uh, And for our second segment, we're turning to Crown Heights, Brooklyn, where residents are organizing to save the Associated Supermarket, a beloved neighborhood grocery store, as it faces a 30-day eviction notice from a luxury real estate developer. On March 8th, Associated received a 30-day notice from Midwood Investment and Development to vacate the premises amid negotiations that have been ongoing since January. The store has been open at 975 Nostrand Avenue since 1991 and was predated by other stores that have for decades provided affordable groceries in the historically Black, West Indian, and Caribbean neighborhood. 
Activists say the store is essential for elderly residents who live nearby and can easily do their shopping or get their groceries delivered. The eviction of the store would also create a food desert in the area, imposing significant barriers for people who have long relied on Associated. The eviction notice is the latest example of gentrification in Brooklyn and development projects with devastating implications for long-term residents and Crown Heights natives. Midwood says it is planning to construct a, quote, significant amount of affordable housing along with retail, end quote, at the site, but its portfolio reveals a long history of luxury housing developments across the U.S. Over 100 people rallied last Saturday outside the Associated to demand that the store remain in its current location and more actions are planned for the coming weeks. For more on the community push to save the Associated, we are joined by Michael Hollingsworth, a candidate for city council in District 35, one of the, the districts around the supermarket. He's a longtime housing justice advocate and the lead organizer for the Crown Heights Tenant Union. Michael, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me, Julia and John. Good to be with you. Um, so the 30-day eviction notice was given to the Associated Management on March 8th, but it's been known publicly for a couple of months that Midwood has been trying to evict the supermarket. Can you tell us about the current timeline of the eviction as you understand it and the current state of things and community members' demands? Um, yeah, so uh, you laid it out pretty well. Um, uh, the owners of Associated were given a 30-day notice last week um, to vacate and... They were also threatened with legal action if they um, don't vacate. Um, in terms of what they're doing as the store and having their own, um, you know, legal counsel, I, you know, I can't talk about that because obviously, you know, I'm just a, a resident. I, I don't know what what Associated is doing in terms of um, legally, but that is that is the the lay of the land that we know right now. They were given a 30 days notice last week. And they were basically threatened that if they try to stay, um, they will be sued by Midwood um, for millions and millions of dollars. Um, uh, yeah, so that's the, that's uh, that's the legal stuff. You know, in, in terms of us, you know, folks who live in the community, you know, our position has been that you know we want associated associated to stay exactly where it is. Um, it has been a supermarket. Uh, in the neighborhood for about 50 years. Before it was associated, it was an A&P, and it has served the community well and the residents here. A lot of folks rely on it. Um, and, yeah, so our position is that, you know, we want it to, you know, to stay exactly where it is. We don't want this part of Crown Heights to become a food desert. And, you know, to that end, you you grew up in Crown Heights and, you know, shopped at, at uh, grew up shopping at the A&P as it used to be at the current location of the Associated with your with your family. And, you know, for you personally, but also for, you know, the community members also that you've spoken to that spoke at the rally on Saturday. What is the significance of the Associated supermarket and why is it essential that, you know, it not be evicted? Yeah. So, um, yes, I, uh, my mom used to take us there when we were younger. Uh, so I do have those childhood memories. Um, and that's why I remember it as an A&P, you know, for me, you know, so, f um, for me, I'm still relatively young enough where I can walk a few extra blocks, you know, to another supermarket. Um, so the fight isn't even so much about me. It's about, you know, a lot of the elders who, you know, we're being quite honest, a lot of the, um, elders who shop at that store right now 
are the folks who moved into, you know, this neighborhood when it wasn't trendy, you know, like the 60s, the 70s. Um, we had, you know, some of those same elders speak this past Saturday. And, you know, they're at the point in their life where, you know, because of years of service they've given to the city, you know, either in the public sector, um, you know, um, you know, you know, they've, they've given years of their life, you know, to the city. And now, you know, they have lots of mobility issues as, you know, as, as our elders usually do. And, um, you know, it's, you know, it's, I just, just personally, I think it's unfair to, to have this population of people, like I said, who built up a community when no one else wanted to be here. Um, and now we're telling them that, you know, because the neighborhood is more trendy, uh, you know, we want to um, disenfranchise you by building a, you know, an apartment building here and getting rid of your um, your supermarket. And it's just, you know, it's crucial for it to remain where it is because we have a lot of folks who, you know, just can't walk a couple of extra blocks to another supermarket. It's not easy to tell, you know, someone who's in their 60s, 70s, 80s who, that have, uh, you know, physical um, issues to walk an extra block. You know, um, it's not, you know, it's it's not that simple. And, you know, it's just not, it's just not fair also. Right. And and I think for our listeners uh, to, you know, sort of understand the, the sweep of this issue, this is something that is happening in Crown Heights right now, but it's happened in many gentrifying neighborhoods around the city. And uh, for example, it, for anyone, if you go by the Manhattan Bridge now on the Manhattan side, there's a giant 80-story uh, Extel Tower, luxury tower that was built in the last five years or so. Before that was an 80-story uh, super tower for the rich. That was a Pathmark grocery store that was there that served the Lower East Side community, uh, a lot of uh, NYCHA uh, projects and houses down there, and, and other um, working-class communities, and, and a lot of elders who also really needed that grocery store, and, and it was you know demolished and swept away, and there was another path mark up in, in right in central Harlem at 125th and Lexington that was uh, obliterated a few years ago. And it's now a, it's sort of just an open lot that's going to be turned into, you know, some sort of luxury development in the next few years. So, uh, you know, I, 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 I'm sure from your perspective as somebody who's done a lot of uh, tenant organizing, I'm sure you can relate to that as, as well. And you've fought a lot of uh, big real estate developers too over the last few years. Yeah, absolutely, John. So, you know, I don't, you know, I I tell a lot of people have the misconception that I'm against development. I'm, you know, I'm not against development, but I'm against development the way it has been done for the past 20 years, where it's strictly about making profits. The needs of the communities where we're developing are never taken into account. It's just what does the developer want? How can they make the most amount of money? If folks have to get disenfranchised and displaced, that's fine. Um, you know, and I was, I, you know, I was thinking about this the other day. I was thinking about the supermarket associated, but then I also started thinking about some of the other basic structures that neighborhoods need uh, to live up to their full potential. So I was thinking, maybe about uh, about thirty years ago, in Crown Heights, they closed down our main hospital called Brooklyn Jewish, right? Um, and they converted it into market rate housing. So today, you know, it used to be a, a it, this hospital was huge. It took up basically one entire block and it, you know, it did everything. It was a place, you know, where people can go and get preventative care, the whole, the whole gambit. Um, so they, that shut down, they t- converted into, into, um, into market rate housing. 
so I thought about, you know, that. And then I started thinking about when they build the neighborhoods of color, um, when they're building apartment buildings, they're mostly luxury and market rate. They aren't actually building uh, for folks who actually live in the communities. I'll use Crown Heights for an example. In Crown Heights, uh, you know, they wanted to, uh, Franklin Avenue was rezoned in 2018 to allow for some luxury development. Um, and this is a neighborhood where the, the median income is about thirty-five dollars to $40,000 a year. You were right in the thick of that fight. Y- yeah. Uh, thankfully, we were able to get that rezoning nullified. Um, but they are appealing. Um, uh, and yeah, so, you know, I was thinking about that. I was thinking about the loss of a hospital. The fact that when they do build in our neighborhoods, it's not affordable for the folks who live here. Um, the fact that we haven't invested in schools, uh, you know, forever, for as long as I've been alive. Um, and then I thought about the supermarket. And I just thought, like, you know, they're slowly destabilizing our neighborhoods, taking all of the essential things that folks need, um, the poor and working class folks need. Um, to do what? Just to build, you know, more luxury housing that will mostly sit empty. I, I live right behind a 12-story condominium um, that has sat empty for the past 12 months. So this entire pandemic, when tons of buildings in my neighborhoods um, were, were dealing with COVID, lots of families, you know, there's lots of multi-generational living, you know, all around the neighborhood. And it was striking to see that you know, these apartment buildings surrounding this palace that is completely empty are just filled with people who are sick with COVID and they couldn't socially distance. Meanwhile, there's just like this huge building that just just sitting empty. We're just doing something wrong, you know. Um, and yeah, uh, yeah, but, it, it, you know, unfortunately, it's not just Crown Heights. It, like you said, it's happening all over um, the city where, you know, we are, we're forgetting about the fundamental things that folks need to survive, like, you know, hospital. I forgot to mention also Kingsbrook Hospital, which is um, also in uh, central Brooklyn, is, is also facing a closure as well. It's, you know, it's like, you know, we're stripping away, like I said, all of the essential things the communities need to survive. And then what are we going to be left with? You know, sounds like we're going to be le- left with a bunch of rich people in uh, luxury towers ordering all their uh, food over uh Fresh Direct or uh, Uber Eats or something, uh, which is a pretty dystopian vision. And, um, and we're gonna, we want to talk about your the the city council race you're in the thick of right now. Um, we we but just for starters, we we had a in our headlines. Uh, we we had a, a group that was protesting outside city hall today over uh, Speaker Corey Johnson's uh, comprehensive uh, plan for. Uh, redoing how uh, land use decisions are handled in New York, and, and they were criticizing it as, as top-down and, and really robbing communities of having any say at all. Uh, your reaction to that as a, uh, both a tenant organizer and a city council candidate in District 35? Uh, thank you, John. Yeah, so I know many of the, the groups that were part of that. I would have been part of it too, but um, I still have to work my day job, even though I'm running for city council, so... Um, so that's why I wasn't there myself today, but I agree with them. Um, Corey Johnson's plan, um, you know, it is a top-down plan. Um, it is a plan that, you know, creates this, this office, uh, out of the mayor's office that will oversee a lot of the, uh, uh, the land use and rezoning, um, issues. And that's even worse than, you know, what we have now, which is, you know, one city council member, uh, who can determine whether or not a, a, um, a project gets approved or not. So I am, uh, 
I am all for the idea of a comprehensive citywide plan. New York City is the only uh, major city in the world that has never had one. I am just not um, in favor of this particular one. And also, I will say, um, for me, it's also because this city council has been a failure, right? For the past seven years, they've been a failure on lots of issues, but particularly on issues of housing, um, uh, rezoning uh, neighborhoods of color to allow for luxury development. They have been awful at that. Um, and I just don't think, I don't think that, you know, the, the, I guess the easiest way I can explain it is if you've had seven years of failure in a row, why in the world would we let you in your last year um, design a plan that's going to handicap the city moving forward on this issue of housing? So I just think that, you know, I think the idea is right. I think that the um, the folks who are trying to push it um, through, are, um, they have no credibility, I guess is the best way to say, in terms of uh, and issues of housing and rezoning. And this particular city council should not be trying to pass any sort of comprehensive citywide plan in their lame duck year when they've been a, an, epic, an epic failure for the past seven years. Right. And, and in your campaign to represent District 35 on the city council, you know, housing justice is really at the center, as you're saying. It's and it's what you know, you say it's what brought you to the point of running, uh, you know, to represent your community. So how does this fight to, to save associated fit into your vision for strengthening tenant rights and what you would like to see, you know, the city council doing in the years to come to to end anti-black and, you know, and racist housing policies. Yeah, I think, um, so yeah, I think the first thing we need to do is, you know, start to elect more people, you know, who come from a space like I do, right? Um, you know, I make no apologies for the fact that I've never worked in city government. Um, I can't get an elected on myself, you know, on my phone, like they aren't in my Rolodex, like I'm, I'm not from that world. Um, for far too long, we have been sort, you know, we've been like recycling the same kinds of people, um, you know, who when they run, they give us these great promises. Then when they get in office, um, they uphold the same, you know, racist systems, and particularly the ones, well, there are lots of, they uphold the same racist systems, whether it's, you know, on policing, education, or housing, that their predecessors have done. So, you know, I'm coming from a totally different space, right? I'm coming from a, from a space where, you know, I've been working as a volunteer tenant organizer for the past five years. And I think that kind of experience is needed, right? Like tenant organizers, where, you know, we're the, we're the ones that are closest to a lot of the pro, a lot of the problems. And, and this, this applies to any organizer, any real organizer, whatever field you're working in, whether it's, whether it's environmental, carceral, I just happen to be working in housing. Um, you know, because I work in housing, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm closest to, I think, a lot of the problems, whether it's, you know, folks are being overcharged by landlords, harassed, um, our landlords are repairing, refusing to make repairs, are issues of, you know, uh, these rezonings that displace folks. And so I have a particular view um, as someone who's been on the receiving end um, of bad city policy. And I think it's going to take someone like, you know, like me and, and hopefully others in city council who are coming from harmed communities who can come up with solutions, you know, on, on how we actually build housing, you know, uh, the folks can afford, you know, right now we have somewhere around 57,000, um, unhoused folks in New York city alone. It's even higher for the state, but, but, you know, we need, we need, we need people coming out of spaces who are going to start to, uh, push an agenda to get those folks housed, to actually build housing that, you know, that everyday regular people can, can afford to live in. And, you know, that's going to be, you know, that's the main, you know, that's, that's going to be the main cause that I'm championing, um, as a member of city council. 
Um, and yeah, just, I, so I, but I think, I guess to go back, I, I think the first thing we have to do is we just have to, you know, break the mold of the traditional city council member, um, who is usually someone who's hung around politics forever. Um, because we know what that, we know where that, where that leads us. It leads that, it leads us, you know, to mediocrity, right? Where we, where we have been. Absolutely. Yeah. And um, to, to bring it back to the, this fight to save the associated uh, Michael Hollingsworth, I'm wondering uh, where can people go to learn more about, you know, the organizing that the Crown Heights Tenant Union is doing and where they can, you know, stay updated on upcoming actions in the, in the weeks to come ahead of the April 7th eviction date? Yes, um, we do have a pretty big action coming up um, in relation to this. Uh, I would say the best thing for folks to do is to follow us on um, socials. So that's Facebook, um, Twitter, and Instagram, Crown Heights Tenant Union. Um, and you'll you'll be able to um, to see what the next steps are um, if you follow us on one of those three platforms. That's the easiest way. Or, or you can email us at Crown Heights Tenant Union um, at gmail.com as well. Great. Well, we'll have to leave it there. And thank you, Michael Hollingsworth, for joining us tonight on WBAI 99.5 FM to talk about the fight to save the Associated Supermarket in Crown Heights, Brooklyn. We'll continue to follow this story. And when we come back from this short break, we'll look at the American Rescue Plan's impact on families with children. That was Stand by Sly and Family Stone. I'm John Tarleton with The Independent, New York City's progressive newspaper and website, joined by my co-host, Julia Thomas. You're listening to WBAI 99.5 FM. Before we continue with our third segment, I want to, again, encourage everyone who values shows like this and other great shows that air on WBAI throughout the week and who value community radio and value peace and justice radio to please call... 516-620-3602 and give generously or go to give number two wbai.org and that's you can make a one-time donation or sign up as a wbai buddy for as little as ten dollars per month 
Again, that number is 516-620-3602, 516-620-3602, or uh, you can give it give to wbai.org. And with your support, we can keep the Independence News Hour and all of WBAI's great programs beaming across the New York City area. That uh, number one more time, Julia? Uh, 516-620-3602. Okay. Now, if, if you uh, aren't going to pick up the phone right now and call 516-620-3602, please promise me you will do so at the end of this show. And moving on into our final segment. President Joe Biden signed the American Rescue Plan into law this past Thursday. The $1.9 trillion spending package provides all kinds of assistance to Americans who are reeling from the pandemic and the economic crisis that it has brought. And in this, in the rescue package, there's a number of generous new provisions to help poor and middle-class families uh, with children. And joining us today to help make sense of it all is Elizabeth Pally, a professor at Adelphi University, who has written extensively on the policy and politics of child care in the United States. Elizabeth, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Sure. Uh, so for starters, uh, can you lay out for us what you see as the biggest advances for families and children in the American Rescue Plan and, and how that will benefit people here in New York? Sure. Well, the first part is there is a child tax credit. There, there has always been a child tax credit. It was $2,000. It's been changed from two to $3,000 or $3,600 for children under five or children under six, so zero to five. Um, and one thing that's really important that they did was they made it a refundable tax credit so that it had been that people at the lower end of the economic spectrum were not getting the benefits of this. Um, many because they didn't pay taxes or they because they didn't make enough money so now it is a totally refundable tax credit. So that's a really big help for a lot of low-income families, a lot of families that have been struggling through the COVID epidemic. Um, it is only for a year. So who knows what will happen next year? Um, the second really big thing that they did was they gave $40 million for childcare. So that money is laid out in two ways. There's $15 million for the child care development block grant, which is the funding for the child care subsidies, basically federal child care subsidies for low income children. It covers children who make children in families who make up to 200% of the poverty line, but many who are eligible actually can't get the subsidies. So that will help more of the eligible families actually get spots in care where they accept those subsidies. And then it gave $24 million, $24 billion rather, to child care um, providers to do things like pay for PPDs, pay for cleaning supplies, help pay their rent, mortgage, and um, their uh, staff. So that's that. That's kind of the big overview of the stuff related to children and child. Oh, there's also money for schools. There's $125 billion for schools as well. And, and and some say are saying that these these measures in the American Rescue Plan, you know, related to to families and children, um, and you know, and expanding access to childcare um, could could reduce childhood poverty by by half. Um, do you think that estimate is realistic? Um, well, in the state of New York, I think the number is thirty seven percent 
Um, but nationally, it is about 45%. You know, it, what it does is it's giving, in addition to the $1,400 subsidy, you know, relief package, it's there for this year, it's also giving families between $3,000 and $3,600 per child. Um, up to, the, I mean, all families up to, I believe, a family income of $150,000 um, for two family income. So it does provide a really big financial boost for a lot of families. And, and uh, can you talk a little bit more about the um, additional access people will, will gain to childcare? I mean, that's sure. something, something and, and I know there, there's a lot of talk about like, oh, how can we get people back to work? But uh, obviously, uh, doing something more to help with childcare is going to be pretty essential to that. Yeah. As a result of the COVID epidemic, something like two thirds of all childcare providers were at risk of going out of business. Um, certainly in the late summer, that's where I saw the most recent um, data from. And a lot of them, a lot that were still functioning this year have been not able to make a profit. Like they've been really functioning on the margins because they don't have any kind of extra money for PPDs that's all coming out of their pocket. They had to reduce the number of children in many cases. So all of this money kind of helps with that. Um, but what it doesn't do is it doesn't provide support for middle income or any families that are making over 200% of the poverty line, they're not really getting any support from this for childcare. Right. and. All, when, it, when, when we're talking about shortcomings in the stimulus package and the fact, you know, thinking about who it's not reaching, what else do you see as sort of, you know, the ways in which it's, it's, it's falling short and not quite um, meeting the needs of those who desperately need aid right now? There's been a lot of criticism from the left of the failure to adopt a $15 minimum wage. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really big issue, obviously, like if we're trying to get people out of poverty, one of the best ways to do it is, you know, to help them earn a living wage, right? So um, this bill does not do that. Um, the other thing is, it is, as everybody knows, it's temporary, right? Like these subsidies are, the Democrats are hoping to make them permanent. But for now, it's one year of this 3000 or $3,600. And I, I guess I should add something really interesting about it is that people will get the money up front. So it is more, it, you don't have to like just take it as a tax credit the way that you pay your taxes and then it comes back. People are going to get this money monthly. So it will function much more like um, a child care, um, not, not child care, a child supplement, which many countries provide for families with children. Um, the you asked about who it's not reaching. Um, you know, the major problems with childcare will remain, which is there are childcare deserts, places where people can't access care because um, there just aren't enough care facilities for the number of children that need them. Families who make over 200% of the poverty line, which for a family of three is a family making over $44,000, it's not a huge amount of money, are not gonna be getting support childcare is something that is not very, you know, you can't industrialize and make more childcare. So the the people who work in childcare are still making, they're still some of the poorest workers in this country. So they're some of those people who are not going to be getting $15 an hour. That said, in the state of New York, we have higher minimum wage, obviously, than national minimum wage. 
um, and it is on its way up to fifteen dollars. And, and can you t- we we have about a, a minute left to go here? Uh, can you talk a, a little bit about sort of the politics of this? So, I mean, there's certainly a lot of chatter coming from the Democrats as they see this as sort of a down payment or a way to sort of get the foot in the door for uh, some popular new programs that they hope to make uh, permanent maybe starting next year. Um, yeah. your, your thoughts on that in the last 30 seconds well, here? I hope they're right. Um, the only way they could get this passed was through Budget Reconciliation Act. So they're going to maybe have to do that again. And for how long will they have the control enough to do that? So it's it really depends. It depends on who gets elected. And it seems there are there is some Republican support, people like Mitt Romney, who might support the child care allowance, but there's not a huge amount of support um, from the Republicans with that. So time will tell if if that really works. And there isn't anything long term for child care. This is really just a temporary provision to increase funding again to address COVID. There's no guarantees that that will extend. Uh, and if there were, some of these agencies could increase their can increase what they pay their workers. But it's hard to increase what you pay your workers if you don't know long term, you know, that you're going to have that that amount of money. Right. Well, we'll have to leave it there. But Professor Elizabeth Powley, thank you so much for joining us this evening on WBAI Radio. Thank you very much for having me. You bet. Okay. Well, uh, that just about wraps it up for tonight's show. Uh, I want to thank co-host Julia Thomas, as well as uh, producers uh, Amba Gagarian, Olivia Riggio uh, also helped out. And uh, we also had help from the field from Sue Brisk. And uh, we'll be back same time Next week, again, you can give at 516-620-3602. Help keep uh, the Independent News Hour on there and other great shows here on WBAI. Good night. <laughs>